Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the first ever episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Frankfurt Slasher. So the Frankfurt Slasher was an alleged serial killer that was stalking the streets of Pennsylvania from, it is said, 1985, which was when the first victim was found, up until 1990, which was when the last known victim was killed. These murders sound very much to me like the Jack the Ripper murders that happened in Whitechapel back in 1888. The sexual brutality and injuries inflicted on the woman was barbaric and sadistic to say the least. So fair warning, this case will be gruesome. Now I'm going to go through a list of the canonical victims and one non-canonical victim who is still connected to the cases. So just a fair warning, as I said before, this is gruesome. So if you get disturbed by these sorts of cases, we'll go into detail about how the victims were killed and the injuries to the bodies. I suggest you skip ahead. They're the faces of victims, eight in all, women who once lived and worked among the vacant buildings and sealed storefronts on Frankfurt Avenue. One by one, They died at the hands of the serial killer, known as the Frankfurt Slasher. From 1985 through 1990, night brought terror to the streets of Frankfurt. The Slasher targeting victim after victim, one in this train yard sexually assaulted and stabbed 47 times. I call him a classic serial signature killer because he left his mark on all the bodies. John Appledorn commanded a special task force of homicide investigators who put together a frightening picture of the slasher and how he worked, posing as a counselor, even renting space in a nearby church. He approached victims like Susan Olseff in bars, offering guidance and consolation. He would probably cozy up to him, get him out of the bar, and then do what he's going to do. Each victim, like 28-year-old Jean Durkin, who was stabbed 74 times, sexually assaulted and butchered. It was terror, yeah, absolute terror. Officially, the eight murder cases remain open and unsolved. But when detectives began closing in on a prime suspect in the mid-90s, he suddenly moved away. The murders stopped. And just two years ago, police got word the man they believe was a slasher had died, leaving many details about these eight brutal attacks forever a mystery. So the first victim was Helen Payton, who was 52 years old. She lived in Parkland, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. She was found dead a week after her murder on August 19th of 1985. She was found by transit workers in a Philadelphia train yard and was naked from the waist down with her top pulled over her breasts with her legs spread apart. She'd been stabbed 47 times and that was enough that it exposed her organs. Now to me, stabbing someone so many times shows great hatred on the part of the killer to me. I mean, one, once, twice, three times. Yeah, I can understand that coming from a killer. Stabbing someone 47 times. I mean, that's not even the most that the slasher stabbed one of his victims. I think there's another one here where he stabbed him 74 times. So to stab someone 42 times, that to me shows someone that has a great hatred towards their victims, whether it be males, females, children, whatever, 47 times and again 74 times with the fourth victim. That's a hell of a lot of stabs to inflict upon someone I mean that's overkill in my estimation because to do that to somebody like that it's incredible like not many serial killers 
would stab someone 47 times unless you either really hated the person and wanted to get vengeance on them, you know, stabbing, stabbing, or you wanted to make sure the person was dead. But normally after about 10 stabs, you'd know the person was dead. But this is just overkill. The second victim was on January 3rd of 1985, only a few miles from the first victim. Her name was 68-year-old Anna Carroll. She was found stabbed to death in her home on the floor of her bedroom, which was at 1400 block of Rittner Street. The murder weapon, a kitchen knife, was still embedded in her. She too was naked from the waist down and sexually assaulted. She had been gutted and was also laid out in a pose intentionally with her organs exposed, but this time she was only stabbed six times which is horrific. The third victim, Susan Olzeff, 64, was found stabbed to death on December 25th of 1986 in her home on Richmond Street. It was after this murder that police made connections between the victims. They ascertained all three victims had been regulars at Goldie's Bar that was located on Frankfurt Avenue. This particular area in question was what you would call a, a seedy area. It was well known for its drug users and a big nightlife. Goldie's Bar, however, is now no longer around. Uh, it was demolished. So the fourth victim was on two weeks later, on January 12th of 1987, Jean Durkin, a 28-year-old former go-go dancer and homeless woman who slept on the street near Goldie's just a few doors down. She was murdered and left under a lorry. She had been sexually assaulted, stabbed 74 times, as I said before, incredible amount of times to be stabbed. That's just absolutely insane amount of times to stab someone. Wrapped in an overcoat and she was left in a pool of her own blood. It was after this murder that police not only realized they had connections between these women, but that it all led back in some way, shape, or form to Goldie's Bar. It also meant they now had a major problem, because it now meant they had a serial killer on their hands. However, the police, for some reason that remains unclear at this point, openly lied to the media, saying that the murders were not related and not crediting a serial killer, and then the killing stopped for a year, which is really unheard of for a serial killer, because normally serial killers don't stop their rampages. They only stop if they are killed, incapacitated, or they're in jail. They don't ever stop. It's not something that just happens. This was between murders four and five, with number four happening on January 12th of 1987, and the next one not occurring until November 11th, 1988. If these two events are related, it is likely that the killer wanted to get attention for their crimes, and when they were denied credit, it made them angry enough to stop for some time and start again later. Many serial killers have been known to seek publicity for their crimes. I mean, you had the Zodiac Killer, who wrote taunting letters to the newspapers in the late 60s and early 70s, who threatened more violence if his letters weren't printed on the front page. You had the infamous BTK killer, Dennis Rader, who sought out publicity for his crimes, which is how he ended up being caught through him being careless by asking about the floppy disk and saying, can you trace me if I send you a floppy disk? And the police are like, no, of course we can't trace you with a floppy disk. And then he sent them a floppy disk, they got the metadata off of it, and they were able to trace it back to him. The fifth victim, after a long break on November 11th of 1988, the killer struck a gang killing 66-year-old Margaret Vaughan in her apartment on Penn Street, which she had just been evicted from. Leonard Christopher later claimed to police that he knew Margaret. Now, that's one of the really odd aspects of this case is Leonard Christopher, but we'll get into that a little bit later in the podcast. The sixth disputed victim. So this is where I say there's a non-canonical victim in this list. And there was this one case that is said to be attributed to the Frankfurt Slasher, although this is disputed. And that was the murder of a woman around the same time or shortly thereafter by the name of Catherine M. Jones. She was 29. She was a waitress who was beaten and strangled, which was a different MO than that of the slasher. Now, some did not connect her to the slasher killings because she had no stab wounds. 
was not sexually assaulted. The only reason I link it somewhat tenuously to the slasher is because of the timing of her death being so close to Margaret Vaughan. I'm on the fence as to whether to include this one simply because serial killers do what's known as a dry run, where they go out, find a victim, and kill her to figure out what is the best way. There is, however, a problem with that in that by this point the slasher had an established MO, stabbing, sexual assault, exposing the organs. So there is a point to be made that she could also have had nothing to do with the spate of killings, or it could also be a copycat killing. I'm not really sure whether Catherine M. Jones was part of it or whether she was killed during that time and just got lumped in. I mean, it's been done before where there will be killings that happen around about the time you've got a serial killer on the loose. There'll be this copycat killing or a totally unrelated killing, and then the police are like, oh yeah, we'll just lump it in with this current serial killer. Turns out after investigations, that person was not even included, had nothing to do with the spate of killings, and it's another separate murder. The seventh victim was on January 19th of 1989. Her name was Teresa Schiotino. She was 30 years old. She was found in her home on Arrett Street. She had been stabbed 25 times and was found on the kitchen floor in a pool of her own blood. Her wounds had been caused by a kitchen knife, which was left at the scene. I'm unclear whether fingerprints were actually taken. I'm assuming if a forensic crime scene examination was done, I'm assuming they would have taken fingerprints, but it's unclear. I was never able to find it if they did. I'm assuming that they would have. The detectives of the time would have taken fingerprints at the crime scene. But then again, there have been cases where police work has been sloppy and they haven't. Next to her body was a three foot section of wood that had been used to sexually violate her with. <laughs> she was also wearing a pair of white socks. Police also discovered she was also a regular at Goldie's. Now we move on to the eighth victim. And eighth victim. In the early hours of April 29th, 1990, 46 year old Carol Dowd, a woman with a history of mental illness, was found stabbed 36 times behind Newman's Seafood on Frankfurt Avenue. The other disturbing aspect about this case was her left nipple was removed. <laughs> Due to the brutality of the attack, her intestines spilled out of her body. I mean, that is just absolutely sickening to attack somebody so badly that the intestines spill out of her body. I mean, this is one of the most gruesome cases I've covered on this podcast, and it's only my first episode. Then a connection was made between Dowd and two of the other previous victims, Schiotino and Durkin. They had all been in and out of psychiatric wards in the years prior to their murders. Yet another link in the chain between the victims. The thing that gets me about these crimes, though, is the fact that some of the murders took place in the victim's home, which meant that the killer had to have some kind of way to access the home. One of the suspects I'm about to talk about said that he was a self-proclaimed minister who police found was allegedly supposed to be working around the crime scene area helping out these women in need, which meant that he would be able to get in the homes of these victims under the guise of helping them out. Thing is, people don't just let anyone into their home. So whoever the killer was, he was able to get himself inside the home. Now, being that John Doe was said to be a religious minister, it would therefore be easy for him to enter the homes of these women under the guise of helping them out, because who would ever suspect a religious man of being a serial killer? By the time these women found out about his true intentions, it would have been too late. It has been done by serial killers before, dressing up under the guise of being telephone repairmen or some other fictitious delivery men, plumber, etc. to gain access to someone's home. These women were living on the edges of society as they were, and I quote, all Caucasian living in the area had a history of mental illness or drug dependency. Now that was a quote from Marissa Bluston from the Innocent Project of Pennsylvania. This is where the case takes a dark, sinister turn. Witnesses started to come forward. Vaughn and Schiatorno had been seen helping out with a middle-aged white man. Sketches were circulated of said white man and no arrests came of it. 
Now on to the ninth victim. On the September 6th, 1990, Michelle Deneur was stabbed to death in her Arrett Street apartment 23 times. The disturbing fact about this was the main suspect who I'm about to talk about that everyone thought was responsible for these murders was in custody and awaiting trial while this murder took place. It is also the last murder to take place and interestingly enough, the John Doe suspect left the state and disappeared after this murder. Which brings me to the only two suspects ever identified in this case. So we got suspect number one, which is John Doe. The reason I call him this is because he was never named by police. The Philadelphia police identified this man as a potential suspect, a middle-aged white man who called himself a minister. He was identified and thought to have been posing as a counsellor, offering guidance and consultation, even renting an office in a nearby church. And he would befriend the woman in bars, but after they left with him, they were never seen again. So why the police never actually looked at this guy seriously and thought, hmm, you know, maybe this guy may have something to do with this. And they never really interviewed him. They gave him one perfunctory interview. That was it. Then there was the fact that he disappeared after the murders or after the last murder happened and they weren't able to track him down until he eventually passed. It's very surprising to me and I think that's where the police slipped up in this case because detectives who created a composite sketch of the killer say they were about to close in on their prime suspect when he disappeared sometime after investigators questioned him. But not before a DNA sample was taken. The murders abruptly stopped, and then many years later, through means that remain unclear, police say they got word the prime suspect died. He was never named, so we have no way of knowing who he was, and as this case is still open and actively being worked on, that makes sense. For reasons that remain unclear to me, they identified this man as a suspect, although I'm not sure how or why he came under the notice of police the way that he did. I suspect it was because he had a connection with the victims that he knew the woman and worked in the area where they were killed or something like that. Problem is there's no way to know for sure. As a suspect, suspect is said to be dead so we may never really know for sure if what connection he had to these terrible murders if any. The second suspect who I reckon is absolutely 100% innocent but was railroaded into this crime was Leonard Christopher. So the next morning after the murder of Michelle Deneur detectives questioned a Newman's employee named Leonard Christopher who volunteered an odd piece of information which was he said that he knew one of the Frankfurt Slash's previous victims Margaret Vaughan. I'm not really clear on just what a type of connection he had to her that was never really made clear. He also said he was with his girlfriend in his apartment on the night of Dowd's murder and both had seen a stocky white man lurking around the seafood store. Now here's a really odd part of this story and I really cannot figure this out because it doesn't really make any sense. Christopher's girlfriend denied being with him that night which is odd given that Christopher said he was with her and she then flat out denied it which meant one of two things. Either he lied because he had no real alibi and didn't want to look guilty in front of the police for having no alibi or for some reason she lied which doesn't make any sense because I don't understand why she would lie unless she wasn't lying and she was telling the truth and he really wasn't there that night but if he adamantly said I was with my girlfriend in her apartment and he was why did she lie I mean we don't know that he was there we don't know that he wasn't there so it's just a really odd piece of this case that I don't quite understand because if she lied and it was the truth then why did she lie as I say it makes no sense because if he was adamant that he was in her apartment and yet she said that he wasn't there when he was, why was she lying? I mean, it could be a simple case of, you know, he was a bit mean to her or abusive to her and she didn't want to cover for him or there might be some other reason, I'm not too sure. It's a really odd part of this case I can't kind of figure out. But it got worse because two eyewitnesses, both prostitutes, placed Christopher at the scene of the crime with a large utility knife tucked in his belt right around the time of the murders. The witness said he was carrying a knife, which to me isn't all that suspicious. I mean, he worked at a fish market. So with him having a knife on him, 
that doesn't really mean all that much as he would have needed one to have gutted the fish the fish market. I mean, it's a utility. I mean, it, it's basically it's circumstantial evidence and at best he looks guilty because he was around the area and he was carrying a knife, but yet he worked there. At worst, it's just a utility knife that he was carrying because he had to gut fish, which was his job. He worked at a fish market. And I mean, I mean, if he was just a normal, you know, person walking around carrying a knife, really had no need to be carrying it. Again, the laws in America are different to Australia on carrying a knife because you can open carry in America. You can't open carry a knife here. Then I, I really don't see why they latched onto this. I mean, yeah, it's circumstantial at best. He was around the area that the last victim died. He was carrying a knife, but yet he worked at the fish market. So A, he had a reason to carry the knife and B, he had a reason to be there. So why they honed in on that as being such a big thing, I don't really understand. However, to make matters worse, Jay Sapang, who was Christopher's former boss at Newman's, testified that he had told her, and I quote, maybe I killed her, end quote. Then a moment later, recanted. He was arrested a day later, which again, I mean, he was probably just trying to be funny and trying to be a bit edgy. I mean, some people are like that. But then again, I mean, it was probably a very ill-timed, dark-humoured joke. I mean, you can't take that at face value because there's no, nothing to that. It's just someone saying something. I mean, I make dark humor jokes all the time. Doesn't mean that I've done anything wrong. I'm just making a dark humor joke. Again, we don't really know that because of the context that it was in. Things, however, went downhill from there. Witness stories were all over the place. Some placed him at the crime scene, while others said he was of good character and was nowhere near the murder scenes. The most shocking part about this is there was no evidence to tie him to any of the other murders and very little of any to tie him to this murder that he was eventually convicted and jailed for life for allegedly having committed. What makes it even worse is while Christopher was in prison on the 6th of September 1990, as I said before, Michelle Deneur was stabbed to death in her Arrett Street apartment while Christopher was awaiting trial, which if the police who were investigating the case would have noticed that, it would have made it impossible for Christopher to have been the Frankfurt Slasher because how could he have possibly have murdered the girl while in prison? He couldn't have just walked out the front door and said, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go and murder this girl, I'll be right back, hey boys? Like how would he have been able to leave prison to commit a murder and come back? I mean, being in prison is probably the best alibi because you've got dozens of witnesses, you're locked in a cell and you're tightly controlled with your movements. So how could you possibly commit a murder while in prison? It's impossible. Well, maybe not impossible if you've got people outside to do your dirty work and stuff like that. It's been done before. People order murders from prisons all the time. But the other glaring factor that makes this case so outrageous in my eyes is the fact that the person in the sketches and seen by other witnesses was a middle-aged white man with glasses. Okay, Christopher was black and was 36 years old, which automatically rules him out. It was speculated heavily that the police wanted to close this case quickly. Also, how do you convict someone without evidence based on circumstantial evidence when there is so much other evidence that points in another direction? Also, how do you convict a black man of committing a crime if the prime suspect is white? The worst part about all this was Christopher was tried and convicted of Carol Dowd's murder based largely on eyewitness accounts. He was not tried for the other Frankfurt slasher slangs, and technically, they are still to this day unsolved. The other question that remains unanswered is whether the Martin murder was the work of a copycat killer or the real Frankfurt slasher. To this day, that remains unknown. Christopher said of the whole ordeal, and I quote, I was railroaded. I didn't kill Carol Dowd. I did not even know Carol Dowd. I was implicated by prostitutes that the police set up, end quote. The only good thing to come out of this is police are trying to match the DNA they were able to take from the John Doe suspect and match it with the other DNA they have from the crime scenes. So hopefully one day in the future, we'll have a match, but we'll have to wait and see. Over time, Philly police tell us their detectives did zero in on a suspect, a middle-aged white man who worked these streets as a self-proclaimed minister befriending the women 
he would later kill. In April of 1990, we covered an eighth killing that seemed to be in the Frankfurt slasher pattern. 46-year-old Carol Dowd disemboweled in this alley. But the suspect authorities arrested for Carol Dowd's murder didn't fit the sketch they'd been circulating. The man arrested was black, 38-year-old Leonard Christopher, who suddenly became the face of the Frankfurt slasher. In a way, that bothered him more than the fact that his freedom had been taken away from him. Marissa Bluestein of the Innocence Project says investigators rushed the charges against Christopher to calm an anxious community. As we dug into the old court files, we found conflicting accounts. Two witnesses claimed they saw Christopher walking into an alley with a woman the night of the murder. But we also found a witness statement saying Dowd was often seen with a middle-aged white man in the days before her death. Bluestein says investigators found no blood on Christopher, no logical murder weapon, and no motive. Just a completely out of the blue, totally psychotic act by a man who never exhibited anything of that nature before. But there was more. In September of 1990, while Christopher was in jail awaiting trial, there was a ninth stabbing that appeared to be the work of the Frankfurt slasher. Bluestein says that final murder was proof Christopher was not the serial killer and raises deep doubt about the Dowd conviction. Not only was Ms. Dowd never given justice because her murder was never found and caught, the other eight women, those murders are still unsolved. Despite public perception to the contrary, police have long acknowledged that Christopher was not the Frankfurt slasher. Only, they insist, the killer in Dowd's case, quote, Homicide detectives could not link him to the other cases, but he was arrested and convicted based on that particular case's merits. Christopher died behind bars at Huntingdon Prison while serving a life sentence. And as for that self-proclaimed minister who was the slasher suspect, investigators say he died of natural causes shortly after police questioning. But detectives did take a DNA sample from him. A sample that we've learned is currently being compared to old DNA from slasher victims as a way to finally solve this 30-year-old killing spree. So to wrap this case up, the police railroaded an innocent man who's now dead. They had another line of inquiry that was never followed up that to me looked way more promising than Christopher Leonard ever was, who was also now said to have died. And nine women who died that never got any justice and families who never got any closure. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions, Ricky reportedly worked at a ga as a gas station attendant, but the gas station that he worked at had a very interesting and shady history, along with the very dodgy owner who was also his boss at the time, a guy by the name of Baha Hamdallah, who from all accounts was a very dangerous individual, and not one you'd want to mess around with.